Good morning, everybody. How you doing? Good? Okay. We got you into the parking lot okay? No soccer accidents or anything? Glad. Why don't you go ahead and open your Bibles with me this morning to uh, Haggai chapter 2, the Old Testament. Haggai 2, uh, it's an interesting book to find, so go to about the middle, right where Matthew is, make a left, three books, you'll be there. Haggai chapter 2, if you don't have a Bible to use, you should find one in one of the uh, chair racks around you. Uh, as, as most of you know, we've been in a series called From Ruin to Restoration. It's a study of this Old Testament text that records some very specific events that took place in the life of ancient Israel, and today we're finishing up that study. And so to do just a very quick historical recap of what we've learned. In 538 BC, after 48 years of being in exile in Babylon, 50,000 Israelites returned to Jerusalem uh, with a call from God to rebuild his temple. That was their mission. And on arrival, they, uh, they set out to accomplish it. But soon after, they abandoned the project, and they began focusing their time, their attention, their energy, uh, and their financial resources on private matters. And, and gradually, their spiritual passion just fizzled out altogether. And for 15 years, nothing was done in the temple. What began as a great spiritual adventure with God for the people became nothing more than a self-centered existence. And so God raises up this prophet named Haggai to deliver four messages to the people over a period of four months. The first message came on August 29th, 520 BC, where God says, consider carefully your ways. In other words, he says to the people, think about how you're living. And then God went on to rebuke them for their disobedience, their rationalizations, their excuses on neglecting the mission that he'd given them. And he calls them to repent and to refocus their attention on him and on the building of his house. And the Israelites respond with humility, with reverence and in obedience, they re-engage with the mission. And God was honored by that. He said, I am with you. But after just a month of work, the people, well, they feared failure and they feared the uncertainties of the future. And so on October 17th, 520 BC, God sent a second message uh, in which he tells the people to be strong and with courage and great faith, keep building, stay on mission. And again, God says, I am with you. I have this glorious future plan for you. Then after two more months of work, the Israelites started feeling discouraged and once again toured with the idea of abandoning the mission. Uh, why? Well, there was a drought in the land. Food, water, resources were scarce. It also seems that everybody was under the impression that once they obeyed God and began rebuilding, that everything would be fine. You know, all their problems would just melt away. And when that didn't happen, they started realizing how, you know, faithful obedience to God is not easy. It is in theory, just not in practice. And so on December 18th, 520 BC, God sends a third message to the people. And he says, from this day on, I will bless you. And we talked about that one last week. Well, later on that same day, God sends the fourth message, which unlike the others, was directed at a particular person. Check it out in chapter 2, beginning in verse 20. The word of the Lord came to Haggai a second time on the 24th day of the month, in other words, December 18th, 520 B.C. Tell Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, that I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth. I will overturn royal thrones and shatter the power of foreign kingdoms. I will overthrow chariots and their drivers, horses and their riders will fall, each by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord Almighty, I will take you, my servant Zerubbabel, son of Shiltiel, declares the Lord, I will make you like my signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord Almighty. Uh, before we go on, let's pray, shall we? Our Father, we're grateful for the opportunity to be together here this morning. It is again a demonstration of your grace in all of our lives. Thank you for our families. Thank you for this church family. And I pray, Lord, that uh, you would speak to us in a new and refreshing way today. I ask, God, that you would help us clear our minds of those things that would distract us, that your spirit alone would be in this place, and that you would speak to us and reveal to us once again 
who you call us to be as your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So as most of you know, I recently traveled to India because we have a number of things going on in India. We work with an organization called Gilgal Mission, uh, International Justice Mission, Living Water. We also have a partner church just outside Kolkata, India. And so we went to see what was going on in all those places. And the day, uh, the day that we left Chicago was really was just beautiful. And as we took off from O'Hare, I could look out the, the plane window at all the buildings and the homes and the, and the schools that represented you know, the millions of people who live here in the Chicago area. Uh, as we we flew into Newark Airport to get our connecting flight. Um, I could see the wonderful state of New Jersey in all of its glory and uh, the skyline of New York. And uh, when we took off that evening, the weather again was crystal clear. I could see out my window that there were stars in the sky. There was a full moon. I mean, it was gorgeous. The lights of millions and millions of people in New York and New Jersey glowing up out of the darkness. We flew over New England. I could see lights everywhere across the horizon. Once we got near Iceland, I think I saw five lights there. But we kept going after 15 hours in the plane we landed in india a nation of 1.2 billion people and as i walked the streets of mumbai uh that first night far from home i got to tell you what man bigness of the world just struck me and all of a sudden i felt really insignificant in the scheme of things and i thought to myself what am i doing here and how could one average imperfect slob like me possibly you know make any difference on this huge planet with all these people What positive spiritual impact could I hope to have for God in his kingdom doing what little I do? I'm no Apostle Paul. I'm I'm no Augustine. I'm no C.S. Lewis or Billy Graham. I'm just me, and that's not all that impressive. Am I alone on, on that? Do you guys ever feel that way, a bit insignificant in the scope of things? I mean, as human beings, I think we all experience those feelings at some point or another in life, which which is why I'm guessing that in 520 BC, Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah, uh, was struggling with some of these very same kind of things, Um, a a sense of being overwhelmed, you know, feeling insignificant in relation to everything that was going on around him. I mean, here he was, the leader of a small group of people, living among the rubble of a ruined city, dealing with drought and famine, surrounded by a pagan culture who didn't want him there, and then given the mission by God to rebuild the temple, which was no small, cheap, easy task. And so God sees that, and and in his final message, graciously offers this leader some personal encouragement, assuring him that no matter how overwhelmed or insignificant he was feeling, that Zerubbabel's life had purpose. He was part of something big, namely God's amazing redemptive plan for our world, a plan that because of God's greatness and God's power would ultimately be carried out and realized. And what I find particularly comforting in this is that nowhere in the book is is anyone, including this leader, called to be great. They're simply called to be faithful and obedient to God and the mission he's given. In fact, as we look more carefully at this closing section, there seems to be several things that God wanted to emphasize. And the first, um, first, I guess, lesson, you might say, the first lesson is about the value of personal faithfulness. I mean, notice in verse 21, God says, tell Zerubbabel, governor of Judah. In other words, this final message from God was directed at one individual leader, which for, for me is instructive on a number of fronts. Because if you think about it, and I'm sure many of you, if not all of you, have heard this adage that everything rises and falls on leadership. Now, I have no idea who first coined that phrase, but anybody who knows anything about organized human endeavors repeats it because it's true. I mean, it it does seem as if every success and every failure can be evaluated on and traced back to the issue of leadership. You know, whether we're talking about a small mom-pop corner bakery or a multinational 
corporation, whether it's a seven-year-old girls soccer team or the U.S. men's hockey team, whether it's the Cubs or the Sox. I mean, whatever the case, leadership makes the difference. Uh, It's the reason why some organizations boom and others go bust. And so being in a position of leadership in any context is a big responsibility. And sometimes leaders get overwhelmed. They get discouraged, as many of you know. Apparently, that's what happened to Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah. And really, who could blame him? I mean, after all, he was the one who led 50,000 Israelites from Babylon back to Jerusalem, only to find the city in total ruins. The walls were, were, were torn down. Buildings were trampled. The temple completely destroyed. There was absolutely nothing left. And Zerubbabel was responsible to to lead the people in rebuilding the temple, not to mention the city and really the nation all from scratch. It was a huge undertaking, and clearly he was feeling the stress of it. Now, look, I am no leadership guru. I mean, I haven't written books on it. I don't do seminars. I don't webinars. I've never been invited to be on this sort of national motivational speaking tour or anything like that. So I can only share with you what I have learned through my own experience. And what I've learned is this, that the only way to genuinely understand the burden of leadership is to be a leader. I've also noticed that the higher one goes in any field of endeavor or any organization, the lonelier the job of a leader becomes. Um, even even though he or she may be surrounded by tons of people, there's a feeling of isolation because you know no one knows or, or really needs to know the, the pressure that weighs you down, that slumps your shoulders, that turns your hair gray or makes it fall out altogether. You know, uh, leaders are, get overwhelmed sometimes. Leaders uh, get discouraged, even good leaders among God's people. And the tendency is to, uh, like the prophet Elijah, for example, is to cry out and say, oh God, I'm all alone, all by myself. I am left by myself. Woe is me. And I think if they're honest, most leaders will admit to having those moments, no matter how brief they might be. And yet it's in those moments that God taps us on the shoulder and says, you're not alone. You're not alone. I know the problems. I see the challenges. I'm watching. I've been by your side. Don't be afraid. I'm with you. And essentially, that's what God was saying to Zerubbabel, who was a good leader, a really good leader, but who needed some, at this point, some words of divine encouragement, because when it came to the mission and how to accomplish it, I mean, there were there were fightings within and there were there was fear without. You know, This guy had to deal with fickle workers. He had to listen to howling critics. He had to handle the cultural pressures around him. He had to survey and assess the huge task before him every single day. And it seems he, he was at wit's end. And so God says to him, God says to Haggai, go tell Zerubbabel, the governor, don't give up, stay the course, keep leading, keep moving forward with the mission. And so in one sense, the, this opening statement is about leadership, but in another sense, it's about individual faithfulness leader or not. I mean, understand when it comes to the mission that God has given his people, whether it's rebuilding his house in 520 BC or building the church in 21st century AD America, we we are all, each and every one of us, called to be faithfully obedient in doing our individual part to accomplish that mission, using our individual gifts and and passions and resources. We, We have each an important role to play. There are no exceptions. But I think what often drains our energy and stifles our efforts is realizing the size of the task because it's big, it's daunting. And so we ask the question, you know, what what difference can I make? Last December 2012, New York Times author and filmmaker Annie Leonard wrote a short article titled Individual Actions Just Don't Add Up. And the article was basically about her her own observations on and efforts at recycling and being green and how she struggled with the question of, you know, in this big world of ours, how much change can one person make, really? 
And it's a legitimate question. And it's a question that may to some seem minor when applied to garbage. But it's a question that takes on new depth and meaning when applied to issues such as poverty, sex trafficking, addiction, racism, violence, greed, immorality, and the overall spiritual lostness of the world around us. Those are big, complex issues. And so the temptation is for us to think, you know, really, how much difference can I make? Not a lot, really. I mean, there's just too much evil in the world, too many dark forces keeping the poor in poverty, keeping the lost lost, keeping the captive captive, keeping the rest of us too concerned with ourselves to do anything about it. And so we can get overwhelmed by it all. But here's the deal. God doesn't just call one of us to mission. He calls all of us together. And together, we can make a difference. Listen, I have to move on here in a second, but here's how I see it. The problem with many people in the, in the Christian church today is that we think God can do a lot in our world without me doing anything. You know, we, we believe that God can change the world without having him change me. And we're, we're convinced that God wants to do something new in the world, but I'm just going to keep doing the same old thing. Hey, listen, as, as his people, accomplishing the mission that God has called us to requires each of us as individuals to faithfully and obediently do our part in giving and serving and leading and sacrificing. And together we can make a difference. I mean, when you, you look at the evil and the brokenness of our culture, of our world, how is God changing your heart about it? What is your role in this, this mission to impact the world spiritually? What is God calling you to do? And are you, are you doing it? Will you do it? The second thing God wanted Zerubbabel to understand is the reality of divine providence. Notice, notice what God says to him. He says, tell Zerubbabel what? He says, tell him that I am going to shake the heavens and the earth. I will overthrow royal thrones and shatter the power of foreign kingdoms. I will overthrow chariots and their drivers. I will take you, Zerubbabel. I will make you like, like my signet ring. I have chosen you. You know, there's no, there's no wavering in those comments. God doesn't say, well, you know, kind of hoping to do these things. We'll see how it goes. No. He says, I am doing them. I will do them. I have done them. And hearing that, it's, you know, it's hard not to get the distinct impression that God has a plan and he's going to carry it out. Now, let's face it. None of us are, are good at predicting the future, right? Not really. I mean, who knows for sure if the Dow Jones is going up on Monday or down on Monday. And every day we contemplate the deep questions of life like, will Derek Rose's repair knee hold up and bring the Bulls a championship this year? Or, you know, will the Bears beat the Saints today? Or uh, will politicians in Washington ever work together in a way that makes sense and is reasonable and, and, and helpful? In a different vein, when we attend a funeral, we wonder when will our time come? You know, we can be healthy today and have a heart attack in the morning. We can enjoy peace right now and see war break out tomorrow. I mean, few things are certain in this ever-changing, unpredictable world of ours. And we all know that. I mean, in the Old Testament, King Solomon was a pretty, pretty smart and wise man. And he wrestled with this reality. And one time he wrote, The race is not to the swift or the battle to the strong, nor does food come to the wise or wealth to the brilliant or favor to the learned. But time and chance happen to them all. He says, weird things happen like we don't expect. And he says, no one knows when their hour will come. Yeah, it's no secret that we all pray to live long, happy, productive lives. But none of us know exactly how things are going to play out from one day to the next. And that was true of Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah. 
But God comes alongside and assures him that not only did, did God have a divine plan, but that he had the power to carry it out. I mean, when God talks about uh, what? Shaking the heavens and earth, overturning thrones, shattering power of foreign kingdoms. You know what he's getting at here, don't you? I mean, God is asserting his power and his right to judge his enemies. He's saying to the governor, look, I will bring judgment, righteous judgment. That's the plan. But God also wants the rebel to recognize his power and plan to save and rescue people as well. And, and here's where this last statement comes into play, because it represents the certainty of eternal reward. God ends his message to Zerubbabel, the governor, with these words in verse 23. He says, On that day I will, I will take you, my servant Zerubbabel, son of Shiltiel. I will make you like my signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord Almighty. Now, for most of us, those words are somewhat confusing. But for Zerubbabel, the governor, they would have been comforting. Why? Well, he would have understood them. Because it, had, everything had, it all had to do with um, the, the concept of a signet ring. And in the ancient Near Eastern world, a signet ring was either an actual ring that was worn on your finger, or sometimes it was, it was uh, put on a cord around the neck. Uh, and it was engraved with the symbol or the seal of the owner. Uh, here's an example of a signet ring with the letter R on it. Uh, it was usually possessed by royalty not by guys like me. So R means royalty. And it was used by the owner to seal official documents. Uh, so when the king, for example, wanted to affix his seal to something, he'd take the signet ring and he would uh, pour some warm wax onto the document. He'd, he'd impress the ring into the wax, pull it out. It would harden into an unbreakable seal. It was a mark of the owner. And so the ring was more than just decorative bling. I mean, it was a highly valued and cherished possession, and it was always with the king. And so it signified honor, it signified authority, value, ownership, security. And so basically God is saying to the governor, look, you are my signet ring, my prized and cherished possession. You will always be with me. Now, what's fascinating here is that while God says this to Zerubbabel, Years earlier, if you didn't know this, years earlier, he said the very opposite to Zerubbabel's grandfather, a guy named Jehoiakim, who was one of the last kings of Judah before the nation was taken into uh, exile. Uh, Jehoiakim was a pretty wicked and rebellious guy, had no interest in serving God and wasn't bashful about saying so. And, and so God said to them, okay, then even if you, Jehoiakim, were a signet ring on my right hand, I would still pull you off. I'll give you what you want. You don't want me. So I will deliver you into the hands of those who want to kill you, those who you fear, the Babylonians. And that's exactly what happened. And not only that, but because of his rebellion, God told Jehoiakim that none of his descendants would ever sit on the throne of David as king. But now, years later, God says to his grandson, Zerubbabel, I will make you like a signet ring. And see, here again is the grace of God at work. Because of Zerubbabel's humble belief and faithful obedience, God reinstates the guy into Israel's royal lineage. And it's not that Zerubbabel ever sits as king on the throne of David. He doesn't. But one of his relatives does. In the New Testament, in Matthew chapter 1, this governor of Judah is listed in the genealogy of Jesus. In other words, Zerubbabel never gets to be king, but 520 years later, a descendant of his, a child born in Bethlehem, comes and fulfills not only the role of divine king, Messiah and Savior of the world. And so the book of Haggai closes with a, with a word of grace and encouragement to a good leader who was feeling a little, you know, overwhelmed, insignificant, and discouraged in the face of a daunting task. And God says to him, trust me, don't give up, don't ever give up. 
Be faithful. Keep moving forward. Stay on mission because you are part of something big, something great, something that will impact and change the world forever. Now, as I pointed out at the beginning of the series, Haggai is um, the second shortest book in the Old Testament, so it's easily overlooked, rarely studied. And I don't know how you feel about it, but I have found it to be amazingly relevant in terms of my own life and uh, in terms of the church today in America. Living in a culture where we essentially have all that we need and more, it is so easy for us to, like the ancient Israelites, get greedy and entitled, self-centered and preoccupied with everything and everyone except God himself who has given all, all that we have in the, in the first place. And <clears throat> as a result, the church is constantly at risk of losing its sense of direction, losing its focus, its purpose. And that's a serious problem because God always calls his people to purpose, to, to mission. Whether it's in 520 B.C. Babylon or 33 A.D. Jerusalem or 21st century DuPage County. We are called by God to a spiritual cause greater than ourselves. In the Old Testament, God said to his people, build my house, I am with you. In the New Testament, God says, build my church, I am with you. In both cases, God's mission requires the sacrifice of the time, the energy, the gifts, the financial resources of his people. It demands courage and faithfulness on the part of everybody. You know, when I was feeling a little overwhelmed and insignificant on my trip around the globe, you know what it was that lifted my spirits? It wasn't like God sent me a personal message as he did with Zerubbabel, but he did allow me to regain a, a clearer vision of what the church should be like. I mean, let me tell you something. What our, fr our Christian friends and ministry partners are doing in places like Kolkata, India, and in Muslim nations of the Middle East, and it's humbling. I mean, it is thoroughly impressive. The churches there are serious about, about faith, and they are focused on the mission of rescuing lost, forgotten people, and they're passionate, and they're fearless about standing against injustice and evil and doing everything that they can to tell as many people as possible about Jesus and the grace of God. For the church in those sometimes hostile places, ministry is costly, it is chaotic, it is dangerous business. But their efforts are, are nothing less than inspiring as God's Spirit works among them. And here's what I'm convinced of. That in our ever-increasingly secular culture, it is how the church in America needs to be. Passionate, fearless, willing to sacrifice whatever it takes for the sake of the gospel. For the sake of people God loves and cares about. At what point... At what point did we start believing that the church is simply about programs that meet our consumer needs? When did we become certain that God wants to send us to safe places to do cheap and easy things? When did we decide that faithfulness is about protecting the status quo and godliness is mostly about what we know and less about what we do and obedience is showing up once a week for an hour to be entertained? When did that happen? When did that shift take place? I don't know. All I know is that it's time we recognize that Jesus... Jesus didn't die just to keep us safe and comfortable. And faithfulness is not about holding down the fort. It's about fearlessly busting out the doors and storming the gates of hell that hold people captive. And so as I see it, just like in the days of Haggai, God, God is calling us as his people to give careful thought to our ways because Jesus said, you will be my witnesses locally, regionally, globally, and you are to build my church. That's the mission. It's costly, it's a bit chaotic, and it's risky, and to fulfill it requires humble obedience and courageous sacrifice. There's no way around that. And the question is, how will I, how will you, how will we as God's people, the church, respond? Will we rationalize and make excuses for our, our negligence? 
remaining preoccupied with our own private matters or will we together revere, refocus on God and apply our time, our energy, our gifts, our resources to accomplishing the mission He's given us? It's a big task. It's a bit daunting. But the world needs to know, I believe the world wants to know who God really is and what Jesus has graciously done. And I believe that if we set ourselves to the task of doing, of, of doing and bringing the good news of, of, of God to the people, and we, if we, we commit ourselves individually and corporately to doing that, God will be honored and uh, we will see great things accomplished for His kingdom. Let's pray together, shall we? Our Father, as, as we look at the bigness of our world, the creation, the billions of people who call this planet home, uh, it is easy for us, at least for me, to be a bit overwhelmed by it all and wrestle with feelings of insignificance in terms of having an impact. But Lord, you never, you never call us to significance. You never call us to greatness. You call us to faithfulness. You call us to obedience. You call us to godliness. I pray that you would help me, that you would help each of us uh, understand that more deeply today. I pray that you would clear our vision for who you have called the church to be in this world of ours, and that we together, uh, using our gifts and our resources, our time, our energy, uh, can make a difference, a spiritual difference uh, in this broken place. And now, Lord, as we, as we focus our attention on Jesus, uh, speak to us and move among us as you see fit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.